0: Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn's Dust Diseases team have accumulated more than 20 years of experience in asbestos litigation and pride themselves on ensuring that their clients not only receive the best compensation result, but that they are supported during their stressful and traumatic time. And Morris Blackburn are looking for a passionate full-time associate to join their dust diseases team in their brisbane office to apply go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers and that's the first time i have not fluffed that read hello and welcome to another episode of a socially democratic your weekly center left politics and organizing podcast out each friday that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad and we head back overseas today to Canada. Uh, where we're joined by a good buddy of mine, uh, Dave Clark, who um, is a campaign uh, practitioner working for a progressive campaign agency um, that does a lot of work with the the NDP, which is the Social Democratic Party in Canada. And he's on today to talk about Canadian politics in general, but uh, in particular this um, freedom convoy that's happening and clogging up the streets of the nation's capital in Ottawa. So Dave's on the show to talk a bit about that and uh, the role that uh, the NDP play in Canadian politics. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, please be sure to give us a five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. When you're done listening to today's episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. And for all updates, follow Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Tuesday um, afternoon in uh, Melbourne, Uh, an overcast day today actually, finally getting a bit of a break in the the weather. And uh, joining on the line from Toronto, Canada, is uh, a good uh, mate of mine, Dave Clark, who's a campaigner working with uh, a Canadian uh, campaign agency that partners with the NDP, which is like the sister party of the ALP um, in Canada. Dave, welcome to Socially Democratic
1: Thanks very much for having me. Nice to see you,
0: Stephen. Nice to see you as well. Last time we caught up was, I think it was the 2016 uh, federal election here uh, in Australia. So it's been a long time between drinks. And as I asked you that question, how you been, you have a big gulp of water there, so I apologize for that. Uh, But how how have
1: (laughs) you you been? No, yeah, doing well. Uh, Lots has happened uh, since 2016 um, in life and politically. Um, But yeah, mostly mostly for the most part back in Canada now, um, rather than in the UK for the last five years. And uh, yeah, like everyone, pretty turbulent last couple of years through the pandemic, but doing okay.
0: So, um, as uh, our listeners will have picked up, you've got a bit of a, a British accent or an English accent uh, there. And so, I, my first question is: to, before we sort of jump into contemporary Canadian politics, um, how does someone uh, with a British accent end up working in uh, Canada for the for for the progressive side of politics? What's the journey that Dave took to get involved in um, social democratic politics?
1: Yeah, I think first getting to canada firstly that was about 10 years ago um and similar to similar journey to a lot of Aussies who end up here as well um came on a working holiday visa to begin with uh straight out of university really wanted to experience living and work in somewhere different um and ended up really loving it here um loving the people loving toronto as a city and so yeah 10 years now i've been here um applying to be a citizen right now um so Hopefully in the next year or so I'll actually get to vote in an election after working on a couple dozen of them here. Um and yeah, then getting involved in politics um was didn't didn't really grow up in like a political household at all. It was politics was like something that something that happened and something that created the conditions that you're living in. Um and it wasn't until I moved here that really got I really got involved in politics. Um we organized a union in, in my workplace, uh, in a coffee shop where I was working, and um, that was just because of a bad boss there, um, and a co-worker had encouraged me to get involved with the NDP, the New Democratic Party, which is at the, the left party here, um, and then through those campaigns just really saw the power of organizing, power of getting people um, their skills and connections together to build power, and that that was a way you could actually make a big difference on, on what life was like for you. So, got the bug for campaigning and, and organising people and, and around issues and haven't stopped since then.
0: We're going to talk a lot about the second half of the program, uh, I guess contemporary Canadian politics um, and um, the role that the NDP plays in, in mainstream political life in Canada, but uh, I don't want to bury the lead, and I want to talk about this uh, truck convoy that's happening in your nation's capital at the moment that is um, hitting all the major international news headlines. Uh, and I want to start with um, how did this all begin? Like, what are the reasons behind this? And I, I don't even want to say movement. I don't want to attribute this to being some sort of movement, but it certainly is a, a cluster of people that are clogging up uh, the city of Ottawa. Um, where did this all begin? I'm assuming that the pandemic has got a lot to do with uh, the, the the embryonic reasons about how this all came about.
1: Yeah, it's definitely the Resentment towards towards government and towards um, increasingly uh, making life increasingly getting more complicated for folks who don't want to get vaccinated and harder for them to participate in things as, as uh, mandates have come in. That's definitely the crux of it. The real like catalyst moment for this has been um, some changes in uh, in regulations for for truckers between the U.S. and, and Canada uh, that came in last month. So. Truckers crossing the U.S.-Canada border uh, had an exemption from vaccine uh, requirements for international travel for a a good chunk of the pandemic um, to prevent supply chain problems. Canada's really heavily reliant on the U.S. for trade. Um, Two-thirds of all of Canada's trade is is with the U.S., Um, so this exemption was really important to make sure goods could keep keep flowing. Um, Those exemptions expired uh, for both countries in the middle of January, and so Canadian truckers coming back into Canada from the US uh, now who weren't vaccinated now need to isolate and take a PCR test um, for for a number of days before they can can continue to work. Um, And it's it's increasingly difficult or impossible for for folks to do those cross-border trips. They can still work within Canada. There's nothing stopping truckers continuing to work within the country. But that cross-border work is is no longer possible for the 15% or so of of Canadian truckers who aren't vaccinated um, and so, around that moment, you saw not not really truckers themselves, but some of the like, usual suspects of, of right wing Canadian politics pick this moment, pick this like emblem of people bringing food and goods into the country being like stamped on by the by the government, uh, and organise around it. So, the two leaders of this Freedom Convoy, they they call themselves, are not truckers themselves; they're they're usual suspects from from right wing Canadian politics and. The separatists from the western provinces of Canada, um, who organized this GoFundMe petition, uh, GoFundMe campaign, uh, and planned to have this truck convoy cross Canada and, and head to Ottawa. Now, the GoFundMe has been, been hugely successful. It has been shut down now, uh, but they raised nine million dollars uh, through through GoFundMe to to pay for this thing, and. As they were going through different cities and provinces, loads and loads of people were coming out and waving flags and, and showing support along along highways as they were going. Um, they ended up in Ottawa, and they've been there just coming up to three weeks now, um, and uh, started an, an occupation of some of the downtown um, with really not the clearest, to be honest, not the clearest specific objectives. It really varies among the group. There's been calls for... Uh, the government to step down, calls for all vaccine mandates to be um, be removed, um, and. Uh, Then there's been these kind of copycat and and growing process uh, happening across Canada, outside of Ottawa, too. The biggest of those have been at border crossings. So uh, border crossing in Alberta, um, the one from Michigan into Ontario around Windsor and Detroit. Uh, Those borders have also been closed by folks protesting. So there's been a lot of disruption both in the city of Ottawa and also to life across the country over the last three weeks.
0: I'm sort of reading about it in um, some of the papers over in um, Canada. That just give us a sense of what uh, the experience is like in Ottawa right now. What are local – because the, the the stories – that there was one story actually I read in the New York Times. It was quite funny. The, these um, Ottawans is that what you would call people from Ottawa? Yes. Uh,
1: yeah, uh, we're
0: saying, you know, we like our really boring, quiet life here and uh, we want to go back to being boring again. And it's just – it's not – that's not happening right now, and I guess they're being a bit glib, but also the point they were making was it's, it's um, enough's enough. They want them to all leave, and the it seems to be the problem is that they can't seem to get them to move on, um, and they're bringing their own petrol in, and uh, there's a whole bunch of measures the government have tried to do, I guess, to try and move them on. Can you talk us through what the experience is like going on in, in, the, te- in, in the capital right, right now?
1: Yeah, it's a, that's a good context setting of, of what Ottawa is like and how it's perceived within Canada. It's the, it's the seat of the federal government, um, but by no means the biggest city in Canada. It's really an administrative capital. Um, so a pretty pretty small city, uh, as cities go. Not a, a reputation as a seat of government and a place for pu- the public service and bureaucrats and, and not an exciting place.
0: Like, it's like Canberra, um, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, good, that's a great parallel, um, exactly like Canberra. And um, yeah, I think, I think for folks outside, like myself, I'm, I'm in Toronto, so a few, few hours away, um, hard to hard to really understand the impact of what life is like there right now. We have, we have an office uh, in Ottawa, so half a half dozen of my colleagues are based there, and most of them haven't been working for the last two weeks because of the, the impact of what's going on. Um, a big feature of this protest that uh, I mean, borders borders really on torture tactics is twenty four seven honking of truck courts mm. like through residential neighborhoods. And if you're working from home, like a lot of people are, like you, it's it's all day, every day, un un unending noise for a lot of people. Um, and like the the impact after two years of, of of really challenging times for people's mental health, I think. Just can't understate like the, how damaging that is when you've got no escape in your home of this, this thing that's happening um big big feature has been street harassment of, of pretty much anyone wearing masks or like visibly following public health guidance um and and whole areas of the downtown being kind of difficult places to go on for if you're if you're someone who wants to wear a mask in public as the, the public guidelines suggest you should
0: Talk to me a bit about the the makeup of of the the group or the the, the folks that are on the ground that are holding this protest, this freedom convoy. Uh, I watched um, th- this weekend's episode of um, Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO, um, and they talked about the um, what's going on in, in Ottawa at the moment. I must admit, ninety percent of the time on that show, I tend to agree with what Bill or his guests have got to say. But on this particular occasion, I didn't really agree with it. They were trying to make out that that the um, that we should in some way empathise with these truckers because it's, you know, the global elites that have left them um, behind, that no one, they have no voice, no one's listening to them and therefore they've agitated about a whole bunch of different reasons and that's why they're kicking off here right now and that, that, that they've been left behind and they've fallen through the cracks uh, because of the COVID pandemic. Um, and I'm listening to them saying that Um, And I'm just sort of thinking, I don't think they are doing that. Just from what I can read, the the issue really is about, you know, freedom of movement back and forth across the border and their issues with with having to take a a vaccination and nothing more than that. What do you think is the – what is the motivating factor behind these people getting involved in this campaign?
1: Yeah, I think – some of those, some of those things, are, like those those issues around uh, being able to do your job and, and cross borders when that's something you need to do for your job, are, are important things to consider. I don't think that's the the driving force from what we're seeing now behind firstly the people who are organising this protest and then the, the majority of people who are participating. I think there is like an element of people, everyone, whether you're a supporter or not of the of these uh, these protests, is very frustrated with. The last two years, like there's been lots of back, lots of flip-flopping from different levels of government on restrictions, things opening up, things closing in, in Toronto, we had the longest lockdown of any, any city in North America, um, earlier in the pandemic. And people are frustrated because they felt that their, their leaders on one side haven't done enough to contain the pandemic. And on another side, which is this, this protest, uh, are going above and beyond what, what should be, what they should be doing to contain, um, covid so what, I think I, I would say I agree with with what you're saying around that the, the specific conditions that are, that are happening with, with truckers. But what we're seeing is, is 85% of truckers are fully vaccinated. Mm. Um, the majority of truckers are continuing to be able to do their jobs. Um, and of those 15%, they can continue to do their job within Canada, which is a huge country. It's one specific type of group they're unable to do. So... I do think there's been a co-opting of this issue because truckers bringing food and, and resources into the country is, is a is a sympathetic messenger. Um, and it's being co-opted by a lot more uh, folks from the broader right wing. Um, that's been really apparent in the protests. There's been uh, swastika flags. There's been Confederate flags waved the protests. And, and like I said, with the organizers, the usual suspects of far right politics in Canada really using this. As I think a recruiting opportunity for people who are frustrated at governments, giving them an outlet for that that channels them towards far right politics.
0: We, Melbourne, um, o- um, over the winter, um, I mean, obviously, Australia's gone through a, a similar kind of experience to Canada, and we've had pretty um, harsh uh, sorry, I would say harsh, we've had uh, clear lockdowns that have happened. And me- the state that I'm from, Melbourne, Victoria, has um, had the most out of all of the states across the country. Uh, and uh, through the sort of second half of 2021, we had a number of protests running through the CBD of Melbourne. Uh, and just looking at the groups there, si- there's a lot of similarities to what you're talking about and the experience that's going on in Ottawa right now. A lot of right-wing groups are jumping on um, the, these, um, these protests but I've also seen it's almost as if it's like that, that, that horseshoe, that horseshoe theory we talk about, where we've got the radical left and the radical right kind of getting around and meeting each other in the middle. It, we're getting quite close to each other. I, I think there was elements within sort of hard left politics that were getting involved in the Australian protests as well as as, as the hard right. Is that a case that you're seeing in in in, in Canada as well, or is it as you've just said there? Mostly, is has been led by. Um, the, the 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 radical right in um, Canadian politics and follow up question. You mentioned something before about Western separatists. Now that sounds, sounds like something out of a uh, like a Star Wars novella. Um, what, what what are these Western who are these Western separatists? You speak of Dave.
1: Yeah, um, the on the Western separatists question. Um, growing Canada is this huge country. Um, really different uh, culture and politics all across the country. Really different way of life for a lot of people and uh in in recent years there's been particularly since 2016 uh, a growing uh, separatist sentiment i wouldn't say it's anything like where we got with brexit yet it's still a very fringe movement um, but we had the wexit party which was the western exit um who were campaigning for separation from the rest of rest of canada um we've also seen the the more legitimately like the, the provincial government in alberta talking about some of these things around like could Alberta separate could we demand more power? Um, and the economy in, in Alberta is is really dependent on on resource extraction. Um, and so there's been a feeling that Alberta is is generating a lot of money for Canada but being left behind in terms of policy making by elites from from big cities and from Ontario and Quebec. Um, so that's that's wexit um and and what's what's going on there still not really a, a big uh established movement within canadian politics but definitely like a growing alienation among western provinces um and can you repeat your other questions so yeah
0: i was i was just wondering is is it is the the the, the protests i've sort of a, a
1: hybrid mix of oh right the hard the left and mm. right coming together yeah in terms of the protests coming, to, uh seeing right wing and left-wing folks coming together from, on an organized level, there hasn't really been anything that I've seen or, or heard of from, from the, the hard left. Um, that's predominantly been uh like the the known right extremist groups who have been quite involved in these these protests. I do think there's a there's a much bigger and quite dangerous group there. Um, I mentioned before about how the right wing is using this as a recruiting opportunity, but there's a there's a big group of people who probably saw themselves as not particularly political, who see this as like a, a reaction to the frustration that they felt over the last couple of years and an outlet for that frustration, um, who are being radicalized by by what's happening right now. Um, there's a lot of. of uh, there's been a lot of talk of, fa- of families uh, among the, the folks with, with trucks downtown, lots of kids currently living in those trucks, um, and it's quite concerning the way that folks are being whipped up around existing right-wing politics um, through this issue. Uh,
0: the, um mm. You share a border with the United States, and I'm just wondering about how much um, US politics and the politics of Donald Trump has influenced uh, this convoy. It's kind of bizarre in Australia. We do see the odd Trump flag at some of these protests, which doesn't make sense to me because there's a whole um, Ocean between us and the United States, what Trump politics has to do. But you do share a border with the United States, and I'm wondering if um, there is an influence of US politics seeping into, into the Canadian um, uh, 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 the, the, the freedom convoy.
1: Definitely some common ground. Um, it, there's definitely elements of it that feel a little bit like cosplaying of, of right-wing American movements. So the Confederate flags It make no sense when you consider Canada's history. It makes no sense for people to support the Confederacy in Ottawa in 2022. Um, there's definitely, though, a, a there is an American le- support for it. Materially, there was, as I mentioned, like a nine million dollar GoFundMe that that provided a lot of resources for this convoy, including things like renting truckers, trucks for non-truckers, to lend that increased legitimacy, and then supplies. You mentioned fuel. there's been a leak of donors who donated through that GoFundMe and American donors outnumbered Canadians by about two to one. Huh. Um, so a significant amount of the money that came in to support the convoy has come from, from overseas. And that's increasingly a a way people are looking at this is, is there a foreign interference element in this because it's so heavily funded for like, it's, it's very clearly funded to, to a large degree from the United States. How much of that is a, is a concern? I think the other thing uh, that, that has brought in some american influence is like how this story appeals to right-wing american media because it it shows it, it appears to be like a show of solidarity for right-wing um reactionary politics in another country in a, in a country that's often seen as like um quite socially liberal um and is right next door I would say, though, it's really important not to dismiss what's happening as an American phenomenon that Canada is just jumping onto. There's been a real rise in right-wing extremism in Canada over the last last number of years, a big spike of online activity for right-wing extremist groups during the pandemic. Um, Again, using that issue as a way to recruit and a way to radicalize people who are on the fringes of their movements. Um, So I think it's important that, yes, there's there's elements of, of American influence in this, but but right-wing extremism is a Canadian problem as well, and it's it's something that hasn't just come up in the last couple of years.
0: It's interesting you say that. Uh, we had uh, a, a Labor senator on the podcast maybe, I oh, don't know, probably 12 months ago, Christina Keneally, um, was talking about the rise of right-wing extremism in Australia and how this, the, the federal conservative government aren't taking this issue seriously enough, even though our security agencies are saying to them, hey, we've got to start to pay attention to this. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and just also watching the way that the... Uh, I guess you'd call them the Murdoch media um, legitimise these protests through their print and their TV um, here in Australia as well it doesn't help. And then you see the conservative, mainstream conservative centre-right parties playing footsies with these groups. Some of their MPs would go out and, you know, address some of the crowds and, and, and things like that just actually kind of kick this story along a little bit when in actual fact, you know, the vast, 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 vast majority of Australians don't agree with them don't support what they're doing. And they're in such a minority that, you know, if you, we like to, to equate um, sort of scenarios to paint to Australians about, um, you know, the, the, the ratios of difference would be how many people could you fill the MCG with the Melbourne Cricket Ground? I don't think these truckers would have, you know, so I don't think these uh, protesters here in Australia would equate to two or three seats out of 100,000 stadium, right? So they are such a small minority. Um, what, what's the perception of uh, this protest by just regular Canadians across the country?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's concerning how how much this issue is resonating with people outside of the fringe even though it's led very much but it's very much a fringe-led movement there's polling that has uh in the region of 30 to 35 percent of canadians saying that they support what's happening uh still uh even with everything that's happened over the last three weeks in 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 ottawa um it is like a clear majority of folks who are saying no, oh, this should end action should be taken immediately to stop it like seven around the 70 percent mark um i think something else that's why i say this is like a a phenomenon in, in canada that's been coming for a number of years and growing um there's there's this legitimate side of, of right-wing politics here too and i had this perception when i was back in back in the uk i'm sure folks in australia do too of canada as this progressive socially liberal country but they've increasingly been electing right-wing politicians and governments. We had Stephen Harper for, for a long time at the federal level. Right now, we have um, quite quite um, like beyond, well beyond centre-right governments in Alberta and in Ontario. Uh, Doug Ford, who's a former mayor of Toronto, uh, Rob Ford's brother, is the premier here in Ontario. Um, and then in the last election, we saw the PPC, which is the People's Party, which is the new uh, offshoot of the Conservative Party, an anti-immigration um far right party um the the triple their vote share got five percent of the popular vote almost a million votes all across Canada so there's this growing uh legitimization of, of right-wing politics coming as well which is quite concerning
0: where to from here Dave I know that um you and I sort of discussed off mic um that this is a moving beast and um moving quite quickly at the moment um as we're recording this on a Tuesday and we'll punch this out on a Friday so this all could change again but where where does this how does this scenario play out in the end
1: yeah, I think like there's a you might have something similar in, in Australia, but there's one thing that's been highlighted through the pandemic here is uh, we have a federal government and then provincial governments responsible for different things. And pandemic response, like many things, uh, spans a couple of different jurisdictions, and so it becomes really easy for governments that don't like each other to kick responsibility between between the two. Um, and that's that's something that we've seen uh, in the response to these protests. The federal government has said something must be done by the province. The province has said something must be done by the city of Ottawa. Mm. The city of Ottawa has said, "Well, we don't direct the police; they should be doing something." So, I think a lot of people's frustration at like how nothing has happened to to deal with this over the last two and a half weeks has, has come from that. Now, today, um, and like you say, this is moving really quickly. So today, today being uh, Monday here in, in Canada. Uh, Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act, which is a, a measure that's never before been invoked in Canada's history. And it gives the federal government power to take additional action beyond what is usually under its purview. And they're, they're doing, they doing—they have to have the consent of the province to do this. They have Ontario's consent. Uh, this allows them to do things like uh, declare areas uh, of, of national importance no-go zones. So that could, that includes airports and border crossings. Um, it allows them to requisition equipment so that they can uh, tow trucks that they've said uh, they haven't been able to move out of downtown Ottawa. Uh, and it gives them significantly more power as a federal government to step in and try and end these protests. And that is hopefully what we're going to see over the next week or so.
0: So it potentially could kick off as well. I mean, there is a I guess there is if there's an appetite for violence from the protests, it could it potentially could. I mean, we don't want this to be the case, but it could turn ugly.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's been the concern for a lot of people, and and is one of the reasons law enforcement will say that they have they have moved fairly slowly on this. Um, there was a a, a a series of arrests today at the uh, border crossing between Alberta and Montana, where significant amount of firearms, body armor, uh, heavy, heavy, quite heavy weapons, were seized, uh, and a number of arrests were made. And that's the kind of thing that I think people really don't want to see. They don't want to see this become. Um, quite unpleasant um so yeah there there is concern i would say that there's, there's already for people living in ottawa a pretty serious material impact on their lives right now in addition to the, the disruption i talked about there's been stories of um protesters attempting to light fires in apartment buildings where residents have been um being vocal in their in their opposition to to the protests um so it's 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 not like right now this is a peaceful protest it's It it may not be physically violent, but there's nothing peaceful about what's happening.
0: Let's turn to um, Canadian politics in general. And for Labour people here in Australia that um, have um, paid any attention to Canadian politics, um, they often ask the question, which team do we support? Because there are two parties, political parties in Canada, that both purport to be centre-left. Political parties, there's the Liberals and there's the NDP, of which you're from. Um, they're both regarded as sister parties uh, to the, um, I guess, the International Progress Alliance, which is sort of a, the, the body that um, is like a geopolitical body that sort of oversees all the different um, social democratic and labour parties around the world. And it's always a bit awkward when you go to these international conferences and there's, um, you know, there's guys from the Liberals and from you guys and you're like, <laughs> who do we go and hang out with? Who do we go and have a beer with after the session? um i always have a beer with you dave don't you worry about that um uh, but uh you know what what, what's the difference between these two parties
1: yeah i've had this conversation many times with with folks back in the uk labor party and it's made even harder because the liberals got to the color red before the ndp did so we're out of the color scheme with, with everyone else um orange um yeah, I think the, the clearest way to explain it is the the history of the the NDP is tied to the is tied to the trade union movement. It's founded by trade unions and, and farmers. Um, the the Liberal Party has a long history as the as the governing party in Canada. We had a divided Conservative Party for a very long time, and so decades and decades of of labor of Liberal federal governments. Um, but in power, what we've seen from, from the Liberal Party is it, it's, a, it's a party for, for elites, for big business. Uh, it's a party that hasn't aligned itself with working people. Uh, they have a, a long history of campaigning to the left and governing to the right, uh, of, of, of breaking promises, uh, and of not standing up for working people when it's counted. Uh, Canadian, the, the landscape in Canada is is interesting for the NDP. The, the NDP never federally held government. It's a, still a fairly young party. Um, coming up on the I think it's the 60th 60th anniversary this year um, never federally held government but held government provincially in almost every province um, particularly in BC there's a very long tradition of, of uh, NDP governments in, uh, in it holding holding power there um, so there's a big challenge for the NDP in in how to be seen as relevant on the fed, at the federal level
0: You've worked on campaigns for the Labor Party in the UK and in Australia um, and obviously as well as um, in uh, Canada. Talk to us about the primary focus of Canadian-style uh, campaign politics. You know, where does the resource allocation go? What, what are the similarities that you saw between, um, say, a traditional campaign in the UK and in Canada? And where are the stark differences where there's a – I guess there's a different kind of focus and attention in campaigning?
1: Yeah, so it's a very similar system to the UK. Parliamentary, first-past-the-post, um, uh, democracy, uh, we have 338 MPs at the federal level across Canada. Um, a big difference in campaigning in terms of resources is that there's very, very limited public funding for political parties in Canada. That was something that Stephen Harper scrapped while he was in power. Um There's very strict donation limits. You can't take donations from trade unions or from corporate uh, or from corporations. So the way that you fund your campaigning is is extremely constrained um, and often means lower budgets. At a federal level, the other problems you're contending with are a huge, huge area that you're campaigning in. It's a massive country. Mm -hmm. You have to have a plane if you're gonna run a national campaign. Um, And uh, you're also, if you're a serious party that wants, wants to win government, you're running a bilingual campaign um Quebec has a huge number of seats um, there's lots of lots of francophones outside of Quebec as well so you you need a campaign that resonates in two different, at least two different languages um, to make make an impact so a similar system to the UK um very very different landscape in terms of the the resources that you have available and how you're how you're trying to stretch them there is a big focus in in certainly in NDP campaigns on on the field campaign um that's a long, a long point of pride is that we're not having the resources that Liberals and Conservatives have. The NDP runs strong people-powered local campaigns in their, in their target seats. Um, and I think as well you're starting to see that become a bit more sophisticated with more technology and more tools coming into campaigning as well.
0: I mean, that was my follow-up question. How, is, um, how much has data and analytics um, played a role in driving campaign efficiencies uh, for the NDP Um, over recent years, um, as opposed to your opponents, both the Conservatives and and, and the Liberals?
1: Yeah, it feels like over the last 10 years, there's been some really big strides forward for the NDP in in modernising how we campaign. Um, The party had their best ever federal election result in 2011, um, won over 100 seats nationally, became the official opposition behind the Conservatives and overtook the Liberals. And I think that was a moment where People started to look at campaigning in a more professional way and recognize the tools and and the the edge that you could get to field campaigning by bringing in more professionalization. So data modeling uh, or voter modeling using lots of different data points is is something that's kind of been new in that last 10 years to the party. Um, A lot more digital campaign tools, a lot more texting and and, um, tools that allow people to campaign from home have been coming in over the last, last couple of cycles. Uh, as that's become more necessary, um, so definitely modernising for sure. Um, again, limited by the the financial resources that are available. It's a mm. very, totally different world from the United States and some of the technology available there. But definitely improving.
0: You had an election uh, is last August? Is that right?
1: Uh, September. Oh, September
0: yeah. last year. It last year though, it was last year, wasn't
1: it? Yeah. 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 So
0: yeah. this COVID thing is just completely stuffed my concept <laughs> of time. I like just. From 2020 to now, was just basically one year that has gone for a lot, but, but it also feels like it's gone for a decade. Um, how did uh, you guys go – and this is a question that I know a lot of our field uh, organisers and, and volunteers and, and, and campaigners will be interested in hearing – uh, how do you guys go with your field operation with canvassing, so knocking on doors during COVID? Because we're about to have a federal election here in Australia at many time now, and also we'll have a South Australian or Australia, a South Australian election is basically in the offing at the moment there, up on the last Saturday in in uh, in uh, in March, and then there's a Victorian State election at the end of this year as well. So there's a lot of campaign to be done. Um, we are effectively still in a COVID period, although you know, the restrictions are varying a bit at the moment because we're in our summer. But how did you guys go with dealing with uh, lockdowns and trying to keep social distancing, but also maintaining a field operation?
1: Yeah, um, so it was in September. I think one thing we were quite fortunate about with how how the NDP campaigns were where our strength is, it was was during a period when COVID cases were down in, in Canada. Um, there was a lot because it was a snap election that had been rumored for a long time. There was a lot of concern about how this was going to work. And uh, as things rolled out, there was definitely concern about how we were going to campaign in a, in a COVID uh, environment. Um, but ultimately in, particularly in target seats canvassing, uh, in the way we would usually canvas, as long as it wasn't inside apartment buildings was largely possible. Okay. Um, There was lots of work done to make sure that folks who were volunteering and who were getting involved were vaccinated and that was something that they visibly displayed when they were campaigning too and generally found that there wasn't much pushback on that from from people at the doors.
0: Okay, that's good. So obviously, um, you know, wearing masks um, and social distancing, knocking on the doors, but stepping back from the door, letting people know they were vaccinated, all that kind of stuff, was the kind of precautions you guys took?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and then, as I said, like more tools coming in to let people phone back from home. Uh, less people, so less people coming into offices and being un- confined indoor spaces was part of it too. Yeah, excellent.
0: Um, your leader, and I forgive me for, I'm going to um, get his first name wrong, I'm sure. Uh, Jagmeet, is it Jagmeet Singh? Um, Jagmeet, yeah. Yep, who's the leader? Jagmeet Singh. Um, who's an interesting guy. Well, tell us a bit about his um, story.
1: Yeah, really interesting, interesting uh, person. He's been the leader of the federal NDP since 2017. Uh, before that, he was a provincial MP in Ontario uh, for, since 20, 2011. Um, so he's been involved as an elected official for t- just over 10 years with the NDP. Um, made the jump from provincial politics to, to federal in, in 2017, uh, running the leader of the party. He was a lawyer, before, uh, human rights lawyer before he was involved uh, in, in politics. Um, really, really interesting uh, leader and interesting change in direction. Uh, quite an exciting one for the NDP. Um, she meets the, the first, uh, person of color to lead a, a major political party in Canada. Uh, he's, uh, wears visible articles of faith, uh, to turban seat mm. and in, in, in federal politics in particular, that has led to a lot of, of challenging conversations for, for a lot of different parts of Canada, um, around is Ca- Canada, which prides itself on being a multicultural, multiracial society, uh willing willing or able to embrace a a leader who is so visibly um from a a minority group Um, so there's been i'm sure lots of folks would have seen a number of viral moments from different campaigns um, where he's confronted that racism with a lot of of, um, kindness and openness and bravery uh, and that's inspired a lot of people um, to to get involved in politics and see themselves represented
0: um, What's the shape of the uh, NDP at the moment following the uh, the recent national elections? Like, where's the party strong or where where do you want to make inroads so you can um, hopefully one
1: day govern? Yeah, it was a strange, strange election in in 2021. Uh, I think if people are being honest, there's there's definitely some disappointment in the party that more progress wasn't made in the last federal election. Um, Trudeau called a snap election uh, during the pandemic, had a minority government. The result we got after the election was almost exactly the same. Uh, eerily so, like a couple of seats changed hands, um, but largely it balanced out almost identical to how it had be- how the, the balance had been before. Um, and I think the NDP ran a, quite an aggressive campaign, had lots of lots of ambitions of making some gains, and really didn't didn't make a lot of them. I can speak in particular about Toronto, where I am, um, just seen as like a, pro- a progressive city and a place that the NDP has had representation before. We've had 25 out of 25 MPs in Toronto since 2015 have been Liberals. So we weren't able to make any inroads here. Um, so that was certainly disappointing. Um, in terms of the shape the party's in, um, I think they're on a, they're on a good path. Jigmeet is consistently polling as the most popular leader of any political party in Canada. Um, I think the challenge is going to be how to translate that personal brand into votes and winning seats in future elections.
0: Do you find yourselves competing uh, against both the liberals and the conservatives in um, in uh, uh, it's, it's writings writings over there not electorates yep. writings yeah I love that yeah. name it's fantastic the, like, electorates like, yeah we call them in electorates Australia. in Australia yeah, yeah. Um, like when you're when you're looking for where you're I mean are you running a a, a, a marginal seat campaign where you're just targeting the seats that your data tells you you're going to be most competitive. And so it turns out that it's it's a mix that you can be in three-way races or in some cases you're running just purely against the Conservatives and some of the races you're just running against Liberals. What is that, how does that look like strategically? How do you work that out?
1: Yeah, the actual three-way races are pretty rare. Um, there's some provinces that, that, that certainly go in three directions, BC being one of them, where the NDP is really competitive federally, but it's really a three-way race. Um, but most, most ridings will either be where the NDP is competitive, it will either be up against a liberal or up against a conservative. It's rare that there's, there's, there's all three of them fighting over the same seat. Um, so it re- it really varies and it depends where you are in cities in particular in, in Toronto, very rare that you'll be running with a, a competitive conservative as the opposition. It's usually against the, a, a, a liberal candidate. Um, and then in, some of the more rural parts of the province, but in particular some of the post-industrial parts of the province, or places where there's been uh, a really strong labour movement. Um, there's a big auto sector in southwestern Ontario, or in steel sector around Hamilton. Those are places that were often competing with conservatives, and it's the same we see in other countries where conservatives are making real inroads among working-class union members. And so that's it, it's a it's a very different race depending on where you are.
0: Um, just to pick up on that point, that's interesting because I mean, obviously, that's a that's a commonality that the NDP share with the Labor Party, both Britain and in Australia, is that we are uh, um, parties that are of the trade union movement. Um, it's something that we've had to grapple with to some degree, and not just necessarily just recently as well. I, I think when I was a young trade union official or organizer with the Transport Workers Union, I think in the 2000s, and for federal election we surveyed our members and it came back that around about 40 to 45 percent of our members had voted conservative at that federal election and i think that that number amongst you know blue collar unions probably sort of you know ebbs and flows depending on you know the perception of labor um how was the ndp grappling with their base being infiltrated by conservative politics like you know how do you inoculate that how do you fight back against that um, you know is, 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 is there a lot of sort of hand wrenching um, um, amongst the leadership about that issue?
1: yeah it's really challenging um that was it was certainly something that has been crystallized over the last two years. Um, one thing we didn't talk about with, with the convoy is is the, the political impact of the convoy that has has traveled to Ottawa to ostensibly depose Trudeau what they've actually achieved was to knock out the conservative leader. Um, Aaron O'Toole, who was leader of the Conservative Party going into the last election, um, had been the leader for two years. And for folks on the left, I think we were very concerned for a time about Aaron O'Toole because he was from uh, an auto auto worker community, his father had worked in an auto factory and, and had really built a brand around appealing to working class union members uh, and, and softening some of the, the typical conservative rhetoric and really talking and appealing to workers. Um, Ultimately, the Conservative Party here is quite a fractured coalition. And so when when the convoy came into into town, O'Toole supported the convoy, walked that back when there were these these symbols of hate that were were seen uh, among protesters. And then his caucus got rid of him because there's such division there. There's a lot of folks who support the convoy among his caucus. Um, So we ultimately didn't see... This campaign, which was like a true blue conservative campaign targeting blue collar workers that we were quite concerned of. But I think that just pushes the concern down the line. We need to figure out how to talk to the folks in our base who are socially liberal and live in big cities um, and often our union members themselves, but in very different professions um, and are doing doing well uh, as a result of their union membership. And folks who live in very different communities where they're seeing their employers and their jobs um, and, and the, the 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 quality of life that they get from their union membership declining over time, how can we also be a party for those folks? There's definitely some hammering in. There's definitely uh, a tension between those two constituencies and it's, yeah, certainly challenging to try and bridge the two.
0: Uh, I guess that is, and that's the thing, I mean, like you think about the Labour Party, we talk ourselves about, talk talk uh, ourselves up as a a, a, a a broad church or a big tent party in which we're trying to keep together our blue-collar working class base that pre- predominantly live in the outer suburbs with our inner city you know educated academic uh, elites um and it's 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 not easy to do uh, at times um but it's it's certainly important to continue to be a, a broad church if we're going to you know have electoral success and have governments what's the focus for the NDP going forward what, what elections do you have coming up on the horizon
1: Yeah, we've got a big one coming up in June. Um, So the Ontario election, which is every four years, coming up in June. The NDP goes into that in their strongest ever position, apart from their time in government. Um, As the the opposition, we had a Liberal government for 10 years until 2018 um, that was routed, lost official party status. Um, So Doug Ford is the Premier right now, uh, and the the Ontario NDP goes into that election with a real real shot at at winning and, and forming government. That's in June and then uh, coming up uh, next year as well as the Alberta election. Um, so the, we had an NDP government in Alberta, which is always seen as like a hardcore conservative um, conservative province. Uh, they lost power in the last election, but are polling at uh, times 20 points ahead of the conservatives right now. So a real chance to, to fight back there too.
0: Fantastic. Well. Uh, Dave, we wish you and the, the, the party all the success for the coming uh, elections and also uh, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come on to uh, Social Democratic and have a chat to us about Canadian politics.
1: Yeah, happy to. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.